everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Separation is in the Preparation podcast. My guest today is Dr. Michael Crimmins. Dr. Crimmins, thanks so much for making time. How are you? Good. Good to see you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Of course. Um, I guess to begin, if you could sort of just briefly introduce yourself to the listener and then uh, talk a little bit about what you do. Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm Mike Crimmins, as you already introduced me. Uh, I'm in Tucson, Arizona. I'm a professor at the University of Arizona in the Department of Environmental Science. And um, my main appointment at the U of A is um, I'm an extension specialist and I specialized in, and I specialize in climate science. Gotcha. And what was, I mean, I'm sure you've kind of gone through a complex journey academically and professionally. What was sort of the impetus for you kind of gravitating towards this field? Yeah. So I am from Michigan originally. So I grew up in the Midwest and I was a, um, I was a weather nerd. Um, when I was really small, I, I remember um, winter storms and thunderstorms, um, probably being six or seven, and just being unusually kind of attuned to them and fascinated with them. And back then, you didn't have the internet, so what you had to do is you had to dial a phone number to get the weather forecast. So I would tie up the home phone with um, just checking the weather. Oh my gosh! And yeah, it was I was pretty nerdy on that, and so I was a bit of an unusual kid, and. Um, it was also the idea that snowstorms could cancel school. So right. I thought that there, that, that was, there was something to the weather that really uh, attracted me. So I, um, you know, I went through high school and then I was headed off to college and I was really still interested in me in uh, weather. And so I was looking at meteorology and my, my, um, my parents were like, can you get a job doing that? And uh, I was, I wasn't sure. And they, how about, how about engineering? Maybe you should go into engineering because we, you know, we knew that that you could get a job with that, but right. um, they relented and I ended up getting an undergraduate degree uh, in meteorology at University of Michigan. I um, interned at the weather service. I was going to work for the national weather service, interned there for a couple of semesters, decided that wasn't quite for me. And um, I ended up continuing to go to school. So I got a master's in uh, now I studied geography, which had climatology uh, kind of built into his interdisciplinary degree, you know, studying hydrology, ecology, climatology within this field. Worked for a while as a consultant in Michigan and then decided I I wanted to go back to school. So then my wife and I um, were both interested in getting our PhDs. And so we we kind of looked around and, and University of Arizona turned out to have good programs for us. And so I studied climate down here and she studied ecology and kind of the rest is history. We've been here ever since. Wow. Very cool. It's, it's, I imagine nice to be able to go with your wife to a new place and, and, and get your doctorate together before we move on. I guess I had a question about, you mentioned that you worked as a consultant. So what types of, what types of groups and companies are you consulting for? Yeah. So that was kind of after my master's degree. So I had this undergrad in meteorology and then master's degree in geography. So I learned a lot about um, geographic information systems, maps, spatial data. And so I got hired at an environmental consulting company to help them um, use remote sensing data and do some um, hydrologic modeling. And so I was working in Southwest Michigan on water quality issues. And so it was the idea of um, uh, you'd have nutrients that would come off of farm fields and they'd run into rivers and we needed to kind of help control that to keep the water of good quality. And so we worked on a lot of projects like that. Okay. Very interesting. And in Michigan, I think very important given the it was. historical yeah. water struggles that that, that that state has had. For sure. um, and, they have, and they have water and it runs around and flows in places, which is, you know, 
it's been taking taking a while to get used to it here. Yeah, yeah, very much, very much a different case in Arizona. And kind of on that note, as you're going through your PhD, um, what sort of was there anything specific about the role that you have now that kind of stood out to you, or was it kind of just sort of a gradual process of you finding your position now? Yeah, so I've always been. I, again, it's got kind of the, the underpinning of interest in the weather, and so studying climate is just—it's really studying the weather on longer timescales, bigger spatial scales, longer timescales, and so it's kind of thinking about the statistics of everyday weather and how those things change over space and time. So when I was doing my PhD, I ended up getting into a project where I was studying how wildfires and climate connected and related to each other down here in the Southwest. And so there had been some work that had kind of tied this idea that, you know, wet winters um, or dry winters would lead to fires later on. And so I kind of poked at that a little bit more um, here in the Southwest. And what I was really interested in was how could somebody actually use this science? I, I, have a, I have a love for science in general, and I have a love for basic science where you kind of do it out of the love and the interest of whatever you're studying. But I have this kind of additional interest of like, okay, so I want to actually know what can this research actually do to help somebody make a decision? And so that, that's actually what I do in my job right now um, in working with uh, for Cooperative Extension, which is in the university land grant system. So U of A is a land grant school, land grants everywhere, every state's got one. We have a specific mission to make sure that we're connecting our science out to people in the communities of the Southwest. And so that kind of marries both the research side and then the applications together. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I think hearing you talk, two things stand out to me. One, sort of the, the utilization piece, right? How can, mm -hmm. how can I take what I've been studying and researching and apply it in a broader way? And then the, also the accessibility. I mean, yeah, right. I, I'd imagine that is a challenge that you face often, just trying to take the complex things that you're studying and distill them down to things that uh, people can take and apply to their own lives. Exactly. So that's, that's the kind of the, the like fundamentals of my position, which are different than other researchers and faculty on campus who may be, you know, really focused on a very specific question. And it is just to answer that question. And then it's, you know, written up and put into scientific papers, which is really great and foundational and really important. But I have that job of kind of working in between, you know, you know, working with that kind of basic science, thinking applications, thinking about questions, and then actually then getting it out into communities and decision makers, general public, that kind of stuff. And does that flow of information, is it pretty much one way from the base researchers out to the community? Or have there been situations where the community reaches out and to be like, hey, we'd like to know more about this. And then you can connect them with researchers kind of on the ground. Yeah, that's really intuitive of you to kind of know the difference there. Um, there are modes of this and, you know, what you just described is in it, it it's, a, it's a necessary mode. It's like we do stuff and we kind of throw it out there or we kind of, we kind of put it at a load, we call it a loading dock and somebody kind of picks it up. Right. Um, and you'll, you know, you see really good, you know, like somebody does a really cool study, it get pick, picked up in the news and people read about it in the newspaper and go, that's interesting. Um, I, so extension works in this slightly different mode where we're, we try to do a lot of listening, you know, so we go out and we go out and work with um, these different communities, whoever we're kind of, um, who, who finds a specific need with our expertise, you know, so mine's kind of generally climate and weather uh, and across the Southwest. So I end up working with uh, like land managers. We have a lot of public land across the Southwest, um, you know, occasionally work with water managers. So anybody who's got some tie to, to climate and I actually can't do good applied research without knowing 
what the questions are. So yeah. a big half of my job is to actually just kind of go out, go to meetings and just try to understand how people do their jobs and what they're struggling with and to get in communication. And that's, that's, I'm, I'm far enough along my career now that I've got a lot of colleagues and friends out in these different communities and they'll call me up, you know, like, Hey, I'm struggling with this. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I can help you with that. Sometimes I'll call them up and go like, I got this idea. Does this make any sense? And they're like, no, that's a terrible idea. And that's great. Cause that steers me away from spending time on something like that. So, you know, to your, your kind of initial question is it ideally good applied work is two way. Right. Okay. Gotcha. And then this is just a broad question, I guess, about extension work in general. I mean, is it almost extension in the literal sense that you're an extension of the university kind of acting as an ambassador in communities beyond just like the Tucson on campus area? Absolutely. That's it. So cooperative extension is we are the extension of the university out into the communities. And so U of A land grant, we have um, county cooperative extension offices in every county across the state and including um, the tribes as well. So we'll have, we have, they're called, so I'm an extension specialist. So a specialist has a specific specialization and we're on campus attached to a department, but I work in conjunction with um, extension agents and agents live out in these rural communities uh, in offices and work there. And so we work together then um, to make that connection and make sure that the information is getting out into the rural communities. Okay. No, that to me, that sort of network of community to agent to specialist uh, to the university is, is, is really cool to hear about. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that can seem on both sides of the spectrum kind of abstract. So it's cool to hear yeah. how you sort of help bridge that gap. Yeah, we're old. Um, 1914. You know, that's, that's from the, the land grant, the cooperative extension part, the land grant was started in the late 1800s. And then, um, you know, it's uniquely American invention to try to basically socialize education, make sure everybody had access to advanced education. Extension came along later to make sure that we weren't just parking on campus and waiting for people to come to us. It was actually like pushing us out into communities. And, you know, we've been here for over a hundred years. So it's really cool. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great point because often I think the communities that need the most help can be found the furthest or at least pretty far away from places of, uh, like academic centers like Tucson. Um, yep. So to, I guess the question I have for you, and this is general, I guess, for anybody who holds a professorship and is doing research and community work at the same time is how do you try and kind of manage all those things kind of uh, simultaneously? Because I know a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, I've got such a cool job because I don't have a teaching appointment. So I, you know, my, my responsibility is to make sure I'm doing this connection and making, getting out in the community. So I, I end up giving a lot of community presentations. Um, I think I've given probably 50 just this year. Um, and it's in this kind of the COVID thing has really shaken things up because before I was driving all corners of the state, you know, kind of giving a presentation and t- it's basically teaching, you know, I'm like teaching on a subject to a community group. The Zoom age has made that um, bit easier, quite honestly, because I can now do these sort of community level presentations and teaching from my house to their houses. And it just takes somebody to set up that meeting. And so I've actually been able to do more of it than I had in the past, because it would take the driving and all that kind of stuff. I think it's probably even better kind of environmentally. So my time management then is focused on making sure making those connections. As I said before, trying to reach out, listen, float ideas and then come back and then do research and then um, kind of move it, 
move it forward. So I, you know, my, my teaching colleagues have the pulse of the semester that they've got to manage around. So they'll, you know, we're in the height of the, the, the fall semester right. and, um, you know, we're heading into um, exams kind of in the middle of the semester. I don't have to worry about any of that. I do help teach classes occasionally, but I get to focus on this sort of applied research and extension. Very cool. Very cool. And I, between sort of the community teaching you do and the uh, sort of traditional university, maybe more lecture style, what are things that you can apply to both? And are there things that you try and emphasize more, be it with undergraduate students or community members that you're trying to inform? Yeah, you know, I've learned over time. And again, it's, it's interesting when you get to, I mean, I think everybody who's gone to um, the university realizes that the instructors typically aren't trained in instruction, right. which is, it's a very weird thing where, you know, you've got K through 12 education, you've got certified trained teachers who know how to teach. Then you get in the university and it's, you just got all these kind of like people standing up there trying <laughs> to teach you. So, so that, that has always struck me as a, a strange business model we've got going here. Um, but I've tried to be thoughtful about, you know, my extension work and my teaching work to try to like reflect on what, what are good teaching principles. And it's been interesting, um, community level presentations really do force you back to fundamentals and, and really thinking carefully about building a story, um, making sure you've got fundamental principles down, not assuming that everybody's at the same spot when you're sort of talking. And um, it usually is more fun that way because you can really, you can kind of build your case and your story from these, this ground level. And it, it really isn't any different than the way you should teach an undergrad class. You know, you should do it thoughtfully, you should do it well, you should do it reflectively um, and carefully about sort of building these fundamentals. Absolutely. Um, we mentioned earlier the difference between Arizona and Michigan in terms of available water. Um, yeah. I'd love to kind of transition into sort of just tapping into a little bit of your Arizona climate expertise. I'm kind of new to the area. I've yeah. experienced what is, I think, have been kind of an unusual summer and monsoon season, but what are some kind of unique aspects of sort of the Arizona climate that make it fun to work with? Oh yeah, totally. So this is, this is kind of the theme of one of my, um, my favorite talks to give when I go out around the state is to kind of just teach people as a Midwesterner, what you've got yourself into when you've moved to the Southwest. And as you probably know, very few people in Arizona are from Arizona, right? I mean, everybody's from somewhere else. They're, they're very few kind of multi-generation um, people because it was a the state wasn't very populated just even one or two generations ago so so yeah so with the way I I try to reflect on you know where I came from and what the weather was here and moving down here and so some of the key aspects about Arizona climate are that we have um, kind of loosely termed something called a seasonal transitional climate and that's that's different than if you're from California or you're from the Midwest. And so the kind of the, the contrast would be if you're from the East or the Midwest, you, you know, the seasons very clearly because it gets warm and it gets cold. Right. And yeah, snows in the winter and it's kind of humid in the summer and you've got these transition seasons and they're, they're pretty distinct down here. Our seasons are a bit more subtle and they're really related to the timing and seasonality of precipitation. And so you just live through one of the wettest monsoon seasons that Tucson has ever seen, and it's instrumental record, right? You know, our records go back to late 1800s. We aren't quite the wettest. This is going to be the, probably the third wettest, depending on what happens tonight 
might rain again. Um, so it's, <laughs> so that, this is gonna stand out. We'll come back to that. I'm just trying to put this into context a little bit. But that distinct season of the monsoon has a pretty hard edge to it and it kind of fades. Hard edge meaning that it goes from very hot and dry to really humid in about a week. And then it starts to rain um, through July and August. September, it starts to wane a little bit and then we typically are dry by October. So there's a dis distinct block of time you get freeze. Then we move into the winter season, cools off. It's not frigid. Snow is rare in the low deserts. It's pretty common up in the mountains. Um, but it's also a highly variable season. So we can have El Nino events, La Nina events that can bring us, you know, enhanced precip in the winter, drier winters. And then um, we move into the spring, very reliably dry and hot. And then we do the monsoon again. So that kind of, that seasonal pulse is really unique. And it, it, it kind of throws people, you know, the, the leaves don't change color. Um, it kind of is brown to green, depending on if it rained or not all year round. Sometimes you can't tell what day of the year it is if you took a picture, you know, cause it looks, it looks the same. Um, so it is this just sort of subtle pulses of precipitation that we get at these two different times of year make Arizona climate in the Southwestern climate really, really unique. Yeah, no, I mean, you mentioned that abrupt transition. I was away um, for Friday and Saturday of last weekend. And then we came back on Sunday and was like a totally different place. Like it had gone from 95 to 70 and cool. It was like the first time I had had pants on in, in months. Yeah. Right. Right. I know. And this has been weird September too, because I've had plenty of Septembers here too, where it's, you know, it's one Oh two and kind of dryish now by the end of the month. So enjoy it. Yeah, no, for <laughs> sure. I mean, you mentioned the, at times like oppressive heat, at least for me growing up in the Pacific Northwest, kind of in addition to that heat and, and along with it, what are some challenges that the climate poses for people who, who live in Arizona? Yeah, so we have um, water. <laughs> water's, water's a big one, and it's yeah. certainly been in the news. It's been, a, it's been kind of a long-term a long thing that we, we've known um, is, has been a potential. And you know, we've got some systematic issues in the way that we have water kind of plumbed through the state and the way we collect water, you know, with our, our reliance and connection on the big reservoirs on the Colorado river, which are, you know, right now at their first ever shortage. And yeah. that, that dates back to the early um, 1900s when we were actually just thinking about how the Colorado river flowed to the construction of those dams, you know, in the middle part of the last century to just watching this sort of fill and then and fall down. So we kind of knew that was coming it's gotten warmer with climate change. And so that has actually exacerbated our water issues a, a bit more quickly than I think we would have wanted them to, to be, you know, so it's, it's kind of pushed on that issue um, earlier and faster than I think anybody was anticipating. But I also think that that's a good thing because Arizona really has to get its water um, situation in order. So that's kind of, that's probably primary. And I think everybody knows that it's in the news. Um, we also have, um, we have a, a wildfire, uh, you know, background risk of wildfire that kind of varies across the state. And we've had some, we had some really bad big fire years in the early 2000s with some of our really deep droughts. And we've had some more recent fires that have been big fires that have burned across large expanses of sort of low desert to mid desert to, to some of our sky islands. So, you know, fire is going to be, it's an, it's a natural process. It's also, it's reacting to a lot of suppression. We, we haven't let fires burn naturally down here and they, they should. Um, but we also now it's warmer. So we have this 
kind of feedback with drought conditions. And we get this, this really interesting thing too, learning more about, but it's um, invasive grass species that have moved into the low deserts have now made low deserts area, when it rains, become very abundant and lush, and they become fine fuels for subsequent fires in you know kind of upcoming season. So we got those kind of two natural resources. You already said temperatures, you know, heat um, is is something that we've got a lot of experience with, but it is getting hotter and it's going to push some of those extremes like we've seen in the recent years to, you know, really um, uh, challenging levels, you know, especially for communities and people that aren't quite don't have that that resilience and adaptation to be able to deal with it. Yeah, no, that that point about the invasive grass species kind of providing fuel for for fires is that is that a product of just like with the cosmopolitan way that we live, like those types of invasive species are pretty much unavoidable or? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of um, there's kind of history, too, about, you know, where do these species come from? Some some grasses that weren't that didn't evolve here were actually introduced, you know, decades ago by well-meaning scientists who were trying to deal with um, drought periods and control erosion and you know, deal with um, providing forage for, for, livestock in it, for, for livestock. And they didn't really realize what was gonna happen when there were sort of ebbs and flows in climate. And so some of these species have just sort of boom, taken off. Some have been accidentally introduced. Some have been intentionally introduced like we just talked about. And like you said, like the cosmopolitan, we still have issues where you can buy these really, really invasive um, grasses at like Home Depot. And unbeknownst to you, you know, it's pretty, you put it out there and then all of a sudden it's like marching up a canyon um, and you didn't mean to do it, but it, right. but it's there. You know, the world is such a complex place. Absolutely. And you mentioned livestock there. And I imagine that a certain amount of water is diverted to irrigation and livestock and, and things like that. And I guess when you have living in a desert, there's a shortage of water, but then you have these monsoon events where all of a sudden there's a surplus. What are the challenges in terms of managing that kind of feast or famine situation when it comes to water? Yeah, it's such a good, uh, another good sort of insight on uh, Tucson is that um, the the flood side of the, the coin. So one thing I always like to talk about here, you know, moving from somewhere else is that, you know, it, what weather extremes in the desert Southwest are kind of the norm, right? Like historically you can go back 10,000 years and we've got evidence of this that we have deep droughts and we know that and we also have epic floods you know if you go hiking anywhere in um in Arizona you go up some canyons and you'll see boulders that have come from somewhere else right and so you're like how did that get there it's water right I mean water has moved these things around so it gives you a sense that there's some this epic force of water so us sort of living in this desert environment um in metropolitan areas like Tucson too, you know, the, the kind of the old way of thinking about rain is it generates storm water, which is that water that is runoff off of, you know, urban areas and, and, and hard, area, hard pack areas is that you just need to get that out of here, right? So the idea is that if it rains, and I know this because I, I know about stormwater management back East. And so it's always about getting it away from people and getting it out of towns as quickly as you can. And so that, that's the same thing here in, in um, Tucson. It's, it's interesting, I don't know if you've noticed this too, but 
so back east used to put all that stormwater into drains and they'd go underground and they would go out to rivers. Well, they, here we use the roads to convey stormwater. And I don't know if you're driving around in the monsoon season, but some of the main roads in Tucson are designed to actually carry the water in the middle of the road. Yeah. And that blew me away when I first moved out here. I was like, this road is flooded. And they're like, yeah, it, it's flooded because that's the way it was designed. And so it's just like move that water into a dry wash that will become a, a flowing wash. And then what you're trying to do is get it out of town. So there's there's been some really good um, rethinking of this in the desert about, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't be just trying to like shoot stormwater out of the city. Maybe we can actually retain it and get it to sink into the soil, maybe get it to actually meet up with groundwater. Um, so the city has, has done some of this, experimenting with this, creating wetlands, creating giant detention ponds and retention ponds and, and rainwater harvesting at home is, you know, another practice. And so instead of like, just trying to get that water off your roof and then get it away from the house, you put a tank now and you can hold on to that water. And then, you know, cause like we talked about before, you got these wet seasons, but you have intervening dry seasons, try to store as much of that water from that wet season. You can water your stuff, the subsequent dry season and so on and so forth. So we really are now rethinking the way that we interact and live with, with uh, rainwater now. For sure. No, the insight about the roads is fascinating. I take back any negative comments I may have may or may not have voiced about the infrastructure of Tucson. Um, because <laughs> no, it's, it's real. I mean, it's frustrating, yeah. but it's like, you got to like accept what it is. You know, it's just not like, yeah, going to Pacific Northwest or any place else that had storm drains, you didn't see it. Right. But here it's like in plain view of like how much it rained. Yeah. And you mentioned the, you mentioned the, the, the need to kind of evacuate stormwater as quickly as possible. Is that just from like a flooding perspective and yeah. keeping quality of life? Okay. Yeah. So then, it's, 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 it's like a, it's like a, it's like a public safety issue is that, right. you know, you're just trying to, you're trying to keep people, you're trying to keep all that water away from people and infrastructure. And, you know, in the desert where it doesn't rain a lot, it doesn't really make sense to put in storm sewers. And right. so it's, you know, it's kind of a middle ground adaptation, but I do think that we're now like, ah, no, there's, there's different stuff we could do with this and actually utilize the water. Okay. Cause I know that, or at least I've heard that sometimes in urban areas, when rain falls, when it touches the asphalt or gets involved with any sort of particular in the air or other sort of pollution, then it becomes unusable for certain things. Is there, is there an issue with that here as well? Yeah, for sure. So it's like stormwater is not generally clean water. Right. Um, you know, so, but it, it's, um, we've got some colleagues at U of A have done some work on this. It's really interesting on like the natural environment will kind of bioremediate some of this, um, the, the funky stuff that's in, you know, cause you got, you got all sorts of stuff, right. That's coming off of roads, you know, from cars and, you know, organics and that kind of stuff. And so, um, but we have microbes that will, you know, under really warm conditions, we'll start to kind of break some of that stuff down. So there are people in Tucson, I was just reading an article in the newspaper, I kind of knew this, but um, who actually with rainwater harvesting at home, capture all that water and filter it and drink it and use it for living. And so wow. there, there are people completely off the, the grid, both kind of energy wise and water wise, who, you know, are making a go of it with just harvesting water. Wow. Okay. I need, we need to step up our game in, my, in our apartment so far. We just have a bucket outside, but that's, <laughs> like, hey, that's, that's not going right? to cut it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier kind of the, the interesting fact about sort of just the makeup of Arizona that many people beyond 
outside of the native peoples who've been here for a really long time are new. There's not many multi-generations um, families who, who've lived in the area. And I think when I think of like the Pacific Northwest, certainly there are the native peoples there who have a really intense and strong connection to the environment. But I think even for people like myself who've, who've grown up there, there's a sense of ownership and pride and the ability to go outside or to drive under an hour and hike in some beautiful areas. Is there a challenge of people maybe not necessarily taking ownership of the climate since there's not that, um, I guess, multi-generation history, family history of living in the area? Oh yeah, I think I think that's right. I think it it's a it is an issue of maybe making that connection mm. between the you know wanting to be outside and wanting to enjoy these resources and doing it responsibly and connecting that our choices related to the climate are actually having an impact on these resources, you know, at the same time. And so I and I think we're kind of we're kind of globally waking up. We're we're as a human species, we're usually pretty slow to wake up to big things like that's yeah. kind of our nature, but I do think we are waking up and I do think people are making that connection more, but there's still a lot of work to be done to try to, you know, to make that, that connection between like, I love this place and I love, you know, being outside and love these resources, but it also connects back to all of these other decisions I make in my life. And I'm not perfect in this in any way either, but it's something that I'm trying to wrestle with and try to, you know, see like, what are the small things I can do? to kind of, you know, shift my and orient my life in a, you know, a way that's, you know, more favorable for the future climate. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great segue to another question that I really wanted to ask is I think a lot of times when individuals face climate change, they see this really huge daunting thing that one person couldn't possibly have any impact on. But the reality is I think there's lots of different ways that individuals who want to kind of exactly as you said, preserve those resources and have made the connection between the things they like to enjoy environmentally and then their individual decisions. Kind of what are some easier things that individuals can do to, to impact climate change in a positive way? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's learning and then engaging on the issue rather than just saying it's too big. Right. And then I, and I, we're at this point too where it is, we need to tackle this from a big policy level, national, lo, like actually local, to national to international and we need to be engaged in the issue and this is you know it doesn't have to be partisan you can you can whatever kind of party you come from there's a way to get involved and get engaged in this issue and we should have kind of different perspectives on how to wrestle with this policy but we need to do it right so it shouldn't right. be like one party's against it one party's for it it should be like no no we should get both parties for it and then figure out what the best way to tackle this is so that's kind of that collective action getting engaged on the issue and learning and finding, you know, how to get your voice into that, that whole aspect. And then you kind of roll it back. You know, it's like the little things too. Um, we are having a huge energy transition that's occurring now, which is, it doesn't even have to really be about climate change, you know, electricity and the production of electricity, you know, from renewables kind of makes sense regardless of climate change. It was yeah. a kind of a good idea, even without, if it didn't have anything to do with changing the climate, it's just kind of the cleaner way to go. We have a lot of issues to work out environmentally about producing a lot of those renewables. You know, we're going to deal with solar production, those kinds of things. But I think if we can work out that whole life cycle, it does just make more sense mm -hmm. than, you know, the mining of fossil fuels and use of fossil fuels in the long run. So it's kind of just like an obvious sort of move in that direction. So any way we can kind of participate that from small, you know, choices to some of our bigger choices, going forward, I think it's the way to kind of get involved and in it. And that's solution oriented and it's positive and it makes your life better, you know? So it doesn't have to be doom and gloom. You don't have to 
feel guilty or bad about everything all the time, we do need to kind of look at this positively and think about how to work that, about it together collectively and, you know, make these small to big choices together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether it's like choosing to shop local to shave, to save the fossil fuels that would be expended from your package being sent uh, from wherever it's coming from. I think you're, you're totally right. And then I love the idea of, in, of engaging as a community and painting it in a positive way. Cause I think certainly there's a lot of scholarship out there that is kind of doom and gloom about climate change and rightly so, because it's a daunting and important issue that we face. But interestingly on the same sort of, or I guess on the other side of it, there are individuals who continue to kind of deny the change of climate or, or for, for, for whatever reason, like cite extreme winter storms as it's not climate change, when in fact, that is exactly what climate change is. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm beating a dead horse with you. I, working in the field, you <laughs> yeah. must yeah. must feel these things all the time and, and be incredibly frustrated. What are some ways in which you kind of try to combat the misinformation? And then also when you put information out, how do you try and structure it so that it can't be misconstrued and used in negative and, and, and uh, untrue ways? Yeah, I, you know, taking that, that stuff head on, I've learned doesn't really work because it's, mm. it's really about, it's about the fight rather than it is about the information. And so that I've kind of gotten over that. I mean, it's like, I'm happy to talk to anybody about it. And if there's curiosity and interest in it, we can have a good conversation. If there isn't, then there really isn't a conversation to have. Right. I still give a lot of talks and I still get pushback, but it's, I'm, you know, I'm trying to connect with people, trying to understand where they're coming from. And, you know, most of that, you know, pushing back is because they're scared. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, they're scared of the, they're scared of this change. They're scared of what the change may mean. And that's okay. That's like a normal human emotion. And I, you know, I think if you can get, if you can continue to work um, with people and you, and this is the extension model too, is that, you know, just like getting into a debate, a high level debate where it's a performance doesn't, I don't think change anybody's mind, but if you can work with really different people on the ground, you'll find out that they aren't that different from you. They've got the same sort of, you know, curiosities and interests and things that they're really, um, you know, bring them joy and things that, um, that they're scared of. And they're not, they're not that different from you. And then you can kind of find out like, Hey, I think about it this way. You think about it this way. And then you can kind of engage on this on kind of a one-on-one issue, or even as sort of a, at a community level, I think most human beings are built that way. And I do think that, um, the, the denialism stuff too is it's out there for sure. And there are pushback, but I don't know. I, I feel like it's maybe waning. Maybe I'm naive on that part of it, but um, I do think the change is inevitable now. And, and we really, now it's about making really good, smart choices about how we make the changes that we are going to make regardless of, you know, what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the news, at least I see a lot of talk, maybe, preventing further climate change, but also managing and dealing with the climate change that has happened and inevitably will happen. So what are ways in which like, for instance, in Arizona that we like a water shortage or things like that, that you try to sort of think ahead or preemptively prevent potential issues? Yeah. So that's, you know, in the, in the kind of climate field, it's a big field. It's not just physical science. It's, you know, economists, um, you know, social scientists who work sort of studying communities and studying how people think about things. Um, I'm more of a physical scientist from analyzing data and thinking about projections. You know, we're all trying to work together and um, come at this both from, we call mitigation, which is 
trying to reduce the problem in the long run, which would, you know, mitigation really translate in this, in this context about uh, abating greenhouse gases and, and other um, greenhouse gas, like not only carbon dioxide, but other greenhouse gases that yeah. we've, we've got to be concerned about. So that, that's like, you know, a, a pound of prevent, what's the adage pound prevention is a, an ounce of cure. Some, I got, maybe I got that totally wrong, but yeah, so there's a lot like of the, up, the, uh, the upfront costs on, you know, not emitting is better than trying to deal with what the cost is down the road. So that, you know, mitigation is still really important. And you see a lot of energy and a lot of focus on this now. Great. You know, I think that this is really important. We need to be thoughtful about how we do this, make sure it's, it's a durable, these durable solutions. But as you pointed out, we've got a lot of baked in changes, right? Stuff's already changing. Um, and we're, the science is young and we're still catching up. We're always going to be in catch up mode. So it's, uh, we all of us have, have this thing about adaptation, right? So it's mitigation is the abatement of greenhouse gases. Adaptation is going to be about, okay, so it's warmer now. How do we deal with that? And it's going to be a little bit warmer down the road. We hopefully can limit that amount of warming, but, but that's baked in. That's baked in for generations. Like that won't change for a very, very long time um, unless we have some amazing technology that we can like reduce greenhouse gases back down to pre-industrial levels. So adaptation is going to be things like water harvesting, you know, like that's a, that's a, that's a strategy that has been employed, um, you know, in arid places around the world, thousands of years, we've got some old tools. We can just pull back out of the toolbox and, yeah. and put in, in play. And then it's also, you know, thinking about um, our exposure to weather extremes that we didn't really think about or think through that we now have to think about more carefully. You know, it's like, what about, you know, wildfires in California that impact the electrical grid across the West while Texas is having a heat wave? You know, we've now got like these co-occurring extremes that really stress systems that are fairly young, decades old, that hadn't seen these conditions before. So that's kind of the adaptation is like, okay, we're not gonna see things we haven't seen in the recent past. Are we gonna be able to deal with them in, in kind of, equitable, safe, consistent ways. Absolutely. No, I think just hearing you talk about the, the interconnectedness of these issues, it makes me think of, it makes me think of the, of the pandemic to a certain extent, right? It was a test of how can we be altruistic and do things that may inconvenience ourselves, but benefit others. And yeah. I mean, you hear on the radio all the time or not all the time, but at least in the last couple of weeks, can you please take a break from your energy? So the power, so the Tucson power grid doesn't, doesn't overflow. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those things where like, if I think you, I hear you talking about weather extremes and things like that. And a lot of your work is kind of connecting those maybe abstract things, those big events to the communities. And I think the more people understand that, like the reason these things are happening are because of these bigger things. Um, the more the message will start to sink in. Absolutely. We're, we're in this together. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, it's like civilized society. That's part of living in civilized society is that it, we've always been in this together. And so you know, the messes we create together need to be cleaned up together and we need to work through these things together as well. And so, you know, I think that that TEP is really interesting. I hadn't, you know, I've been here for 20 years. I don't remember hearing that. And so that was new to me. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. You know, this is, this is important. I mean, I think that they'll eventually build more capacity and maybe be able to do, and that's the adaptation part of it. But right. in those crunch periods, and like you pointed out with COVID, there's a lot of unexpected things 
in a really complex civilized society that will creep up and go, oh yeah, that, that stuff was all connected. I believed it wasn't. And I was going about my everyday life. Like I could do whatever I wanted, but no, like it's never really been that way. It's been, that's been the illusion. You know, this is more real, I think, than, than, um, you know, the way we were living in the past. For sure. For sure. I guess a, a question I have, it's maybe more of a big picture one is a lot of obviously climate work is deals with reflection on the past and then a little bit of prediction in the future. And I mean, anybody who's wasted their time criticizing their local meteorologist for telling, <laughs> saying it's going to rain and then not, or vice versa, understands that like, it's not an exact science in terms of predicting when things happen. Although it's incredible, like just on your phone, you can download an app and you can see where lightning is striking, when it's going to rain, all those different types of things. I guess just general sort of philosophy wise, as you approach your work, what are the kind of the positives of dealing with something like climate that's so unpredictable? And then what can sometimes be sort of difficult or frustrating about it? Yeah. You know, the, in that kind of weather to climate continuum too, um, you know, just as you pointed out that, um, you know, when I was a kid, that weather nerd kid, you know, calling the weather line, yeah. I could never have imagined that I would be able to have a a device in my hand that I could like get any weather information that I wanted, including like radar and how many, there are so many weather satellites. Like it's, that's remarkable. Right. And so that's, that's in a span of about 40 years. And so 40 years in the future, gosh, I can only imagine what that'll be like, but the current sort of state of the art is um, weather prediction has gotten amazingly better over the last 20, 30 years with better science and better computers. So computers are now able to do many more calculations per second than they used to. And it's kind of Moore's law too. It it goes up exponentially. That has limitations though, because our ability with all of this math um, and all this physics embedded in these computer models, it can do it really quickly, but it can also get it wrong. really quickly too. And so there's there's still these sort of fundamental limitations on weather forecasts where if you don't get the model quite right at the beginning, it can quickly sort of spin off and give you a wrong answer. But it also, it's this idea of chaos too, is that there are subtle perturbations in the system that you're not quite capturing that are nonlinear and then they can just kind of explode. So one of the big advances that's happened both in weather and climate is that we can now run many models at the same starting point and adjust slightly adjust them and they're called ensembles and you run them forward and you look to see where the models agree, which means that the signal is strong enough that it's overcoming any of the small perturbations. And then they'll, they'll kind of go off, we call it spaghetti, because you'll look at a, a map and it'll have just crazy lines everywhere and it looks like a bowl of spaghetti. That, we've kind of reined that in. And so that prediction, you know, five to seven days is really quite good. You get less spaghetti. You still get a lot of spaghetti once you get out past that because it's a limitation. We get into climate, we make seasonal forecasts. We try to anticipate. So right now it's not, I don't do this. I help sort of educate and traffic on this information is that we we will look at the state of the El Nino Southern Oscillation in the Pacific Ocean, whether or not it's a La Nina or an El Nino, that's a slowly moving condition across the Pacific. And so if we in the summertime, see a La Nina developing, we have pretty good indication that it's going to reorganize the winter jet stream, and it's going to bring different weather to different parts of the country. And so you, from Pacific Northwest, you know, La Nina winters are wet. Mm. La Nina winters in the Southwest are dry. So we're already kind of using that as a um, forecasting tool for this upcoming winter. 
Wow. No, I mean, the combination of looking at weather patterns over in the middle of the ocean and then the complex technology and how that can be applied to when you open up your phone and look when, if it's going to be raining at all tomorrow is, is kind of mind blowing when, when you put it all together like that. Yeah. Well, for me, I mean, I guess the last, the last thing I'm curious about is sort of just how can, how can, I guess, individuals who are interested in climate or interested in the prevention of climate change, how can maybe they get involved more than just sort of the base level of individual choices? Like, is there a way, is there kind of a middle ground between where you sit and then like just recycling more? Oh yeah. I mean, there are so many resources and groups. It's probably overwhelming now, right. you know, to, 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 I think, you know, just, I think it's the education. I mean, and again, I'm, I'm biased on this, right. Cause it, to me, it's about teaching it's about fitting everything together. You know, I think, and I've thought about this too personally about, okay, you got to figure out what's going to bring you, how you're going to engage with this issue and it's going to bring you some joy too. Cause mm-hmm. otherwise it won't carry you along. Yeah, you got to find something about this. Exactly. Right. You know, you've got to figure out some way, you know, if it's the same, it's like with this, with a lot of environmentalism is that if it, if it's guilt-driven and it's drudgery, it probably won't last long. Right. So it's got to, you got to find some way to like, how do I engage with this issue that I'm like, oh yeah, this, this matches me and my skills and my expertise and, and um, you know, my talents. And then that'll connect to the issue and sort of carry along. You know, if everybody did that, we have such, you know, a diversity of talents and skills. You'd have like people coming at it from every issue and you get a lot of creativity. And I think it would pull, pull us all along. Right. So, so again, you're going to get the bias thing for me is like, you know, maybe the first step is to just try to learn yeah. about the issue more. And then you'll find those entry points for yourself through that education process. Absolutely. That's yeah, that's very well said. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, but yeah, no, that is all for me, Dr. Crimmins. This has been really, really cool. Thanks so much for um, answering my questions and, and taking the time. This is, this, this has been, this has been really, really great. Yeah. Really fun talking with you all. It's great questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Separation is in the Preparation podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do what you can to share it with others. As always, you can find us on Instagram at the Sep is in the Prep, or if you'd like to reach me directly, I can be found on all social media platforms under the handle at Wallapse11. Thanks, and take care.